Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan. I'm Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. You know, on this podcast, we try to talk about the good things in the world. So we're not, you know, we're not very apocalyptically minded in that we like to lift up all the terrible things in the world. But uh, there was a serious theft that struck <laughs> the evangelicals uh, while Jeremy and his family were uh, going to a funeral in yeah. Kentucky, right? Yeah, Moorhead, Kentucky. We uh, were there and um, got back to the motel late, so I had to park on the side of the motel. Uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> foreshadowing outside of security cameras yeah surveillance, you guys like, never park on the outside of the boat and so we have a jeep liberty so it sits higher off the ground and uh i went out the next morning uh to head to said funeral started up the jeep liberty and it sounded like a nascar like it was like Vroom. my oldest son was in the the car with me and he thought it was gonna blow up like it was so loud and um and so come to find out we were uh you know, victims of a catalytic converter theft. So I've heard of this multiple times, Jeremy, of this, what's, what's in the catalytic converter that is so valuable? Isn't there some sort of, well, I don't know that it's the catalytic converter I think is, um, helps the CO2 emission to be less, but it's okay. attached to the muffler, which is when, so it was like there was a hole in the sure, exhaust sure, sure. or whatever, which is what made it so loud. But we, um, so, you know, had to, I was supposed to lead the funeral possession because I was doing the funeral. No, so no. I called Tara and I'm like, I got to ride with somebody else and uh, this is not going to happen. And so we worked it all out and uh, and then took it to a mechanic there in Moorhead. And he's like, I can't get to it till the middle of next week. And I was like, well, that doesn't work. And uh, I was like, can I drive it? Is it going to hurt? He's like, it's not going to hurt. It's just going to be loud. And uh, it it was and uh, so all the way to from Moorhead to Paulding I had to do a police report and uh, so I was talking to the officer and uh, really nice guy and so he was talking like hey on your trip home be careful sometimes when you go through small towns if you don't have a muffler they'll pull you over and give you a ticket he goes around these parts we don't do it very much because nobody has a muffler <laughs> and uh then he said, so he was really nice, wrote me a little note with a report number on it. If I got pulled over, I could say, hey, we literally just had this stolen and we're just wow. trying, trying to get home. It was a really nice guy. And he was just making fun of people from Kentucky and stuff. It was it was great. So cars in the shop and uh, we'll see. We'll see. Thankfully, uh, insurance is going to cover it and we're we're going to get a new catalytic converter, I guess. It's part yeah. of life, right? Yeah. Rain's on the. The good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, there, that was a good Bible lesson out of the, out of the story. That was my just, son is like, when is this going to show up in a sermon? I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I mean, we don't really do personal stories that much. Like, I'm realizing, like, our our listeners don't really know anything about our personal lives, you know. And and people actually sometimes say that to me is like, you know, your podcast, you guys always talk about, you know, the, the topic of the day, and don't necessarily talk about the personal stuff. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so that was uh, the beginning of my week. Yeah. So if you feel bad for Jeremy, remember we are unfunded. You could always send checks <laughs> to uh, Jeremy Thompson at the Pauline Church of Nazarene. Just dress him to him. He'd love that. But yeah, insurance is taking care of it. So we're good. Uh, um, today we are talking about tradition. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? I have not. The opening scene of Fiddler on the Roof is is so awesome. It's brilliantly done. 
Fiddler on the Roof is this is this musical about a small Jewish community somewhere in the former Soviet Union uh, and around the time of I think I think it's set in the early 20th century or late 19th century and spoiler alert this community is being displaced and what happens you know the, the film starts out or the musical starts out with this song tradition tradition and, and and they sing they sing all about the different ways where everything in the town is exactly the same as it has always been and when anyone asks why the answer to the question is tradition of course you know and the and the story is really a story about the displacement not only of people but of traditions how do we refigure our lives when people attack our traditions tradition is something that in evangelicalism we have we we do we do not think highly of there's a historian named dan williams who says he wrote a, he actually wrote a book entitled evangelicals and tradition pick it up it is a great read dh williams evangelicals and tradition well in in that book williams essentially says about evangelicals you know, in throwing out tradition, we really don't have much left. Yeah. Uh, and furthermore, he says, you know, when Martin Luther, so much of our throwing out of tradition is the as the idea of the solas, sola scriptura, you know, only scripture, sola fide, only faith, sola gratia, only grace, you know. And what Williams says is he says, you know, when when Luther said sola scriptura, he wasn't saying nuda scriptura, <laughs> naked scripture. Uh, um, but when we say sola scriptura, we say, yeah, I just read, you know, the scripture on its own for its face value, not even realizing that, a, you know, whatever version you get has a theological bent of scholars who got together, you know, even the NRSV that's supposed to be objective. Well, at least confess that you're tr what you're trying to do is Bible without faith tradition. How can you even do that? You know, it's, I mean, it's like no matter what, how objective of a source you're trying to get when you're reading the Bible, you know, and this is kind of D.H. Williams claim. Well, we're going to talk about tradition today, and the question, the question that has been pressing me lately, Jeremy, is this question: What traditions am I holding on to in my own life that I'm not willing of letting go of? In what way am I a fundamentalist more than I am a, a Christian with a pure heart? I guess would be maybe the um, the the polarity that I would offer yeah. over against uh, you know someone who is staunch in their tradition and as as Wesleyan's tradition plays a huge part in how we come to truth I feel like um, talk about that the quadrilateral <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 um, this is a concept that I don't know that people really think about often or that is really widely known so Wesley had he didn't coin this phrase this was people that came after wesley john wesley that is lived in the 1700s um the wesleyan quadrilateral and and so it was scripture reason tradition and experience and that you use these four things to try to get at what truth actually is um i think that probably wesley i it's all the stuff that i've read and people that have written about him um didn't think that it was actually quadrilateral, that it was four equal sides, but that scripture played like a heavier role than tradition, experience, and reason. 
um, but that he didn't negate those things. Those things were really important that as we are trying to figure out what truth is, we need to listen. Uh, what is my experience? If you read Plain Account and Christian Perfection, which is kind of Wesley's manifesto, you might say his big uh, thing, he talks a lot about experience and, and how did people experience holiness and what did that look like? Um, what did a forefather say? He was really big into uh, Thomas Akempis and some of these forefathers, and it was important to him, their understanding of holiness or what it meant to follow Jesus. Um, and then reason, like God gave us a mind. We need to think through and just say, well, this seems to make sense in connecting these dots. But once again, it has to be to rest on or to be found in scripture. Scripture is the the the, the bigger piece of those four things. And so I think that that as we are trying to figure out and think about what truth is and how do we understand how do we get at truth, Wesley would say all of these four things, with Scripture being the heaviest of all the four, play into helping us understand um, and have a better grasp, grasp on um, what the truth is that needs to come forward. So to that point, I think I think that we think of the New Testament as this document that has just been around for forever that even the earliest Christians were using. But the fact of the matter is the New Testament is a book forged in the flames of people trying to figure out how to live without a guide for the times in which they were living. That's why we have a New Testament is because the early church didn't have the New Testament. And so they wrote and they compiled these things, these guides for people to live. One of my favorite examples of the Wesleyan quadrilateral that predates Wesley by 1700 years is the council at Jerusalem. Yeah. In Acts chapter 15, the early church got together and they realized the Old Testament had nothing to say about Gentiles coming to know the Lord. The Old Testament is all about the right way for Jews to be Jewish. Yeah. The New Testament, in many ways, is about the right way for Gentiles to be Jewish. I mean, you know, I mean, really, right. you know, coming to follow Jesus, who was a rabbi, who was right. a Jew. And so the early church got together and they were trying to figure out what they should impose on Gentiles, which, which requirements of the law they should make Gentiles follow, people who are coming to faith, right? And after much discussion and deliberation in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, it says this, and this is one of my favorite lines in the New Testament. I love it. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They don't say, the Bible says. They don't say, um, we we have you know worked through to this decision and and you know we voted. Or even that we went up on a mountain and God gave us yeah. this this law or this command. They just simply say, you know what? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Yeah. To impose on you no further burden than these essentials. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> it is, Jeremy, it's, 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 it's one of the greatest letters, in my opinion, ever written. I think, yeah. I think it's, it would be such a great guide. We don't take people's attention back to Acts 15 enough in the modern church, in my personal opinion. Sure. But I think it's a great guide. To, to recognize that even these people that we look at as the patriarchs, the apostles, the pillars of our faith, yeah. even they were humble enough to recognize they, they didn't they didn't even want to write down, God told us so. Right. They said, you know what? We're we're just 
at least for right now, it, it seems like this is what is good to the Holy Spirit and to us, you know? And what was amazing about that is they were navigating a very fine line between uh, between the pious traditions of the faithful and those coming to faith who knew nothing of the pious traditions. I think what's interesting too, I think it's a little few chapters earlier, the story of Cornelius. That the, al- is this the sheet? Yeah, no, yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. And, and Peter. And I think I'll, traditionally we talk about how, is it Cornelius? I think that's who it is, that he, it's his salvation. It's the way that he's saved. But I, it's been interesting the past several years, I've heard a lot of people talk about, no, this is actually a salvation for Peter, that Peter was trapped up in the tradition and God is saying all of those things that that you hold so dear because Peter almost rebukes God, rebukes Jesus. Like, well, he says, he says, I'm, I'm not going to eat any not, of these yeah, things never. That, are, that are unclean. Yeah. Are you joking me? Yeah. <laughs> are you kidding? Listen, I, Don't I've you read the Old I Testament. <laughs> I've read the Old Testament. I've seen tests. I know the story of Abraham and Isaac it's, and I'm going to pass right so now. So I think yeah. that was a next step for Peter who once again, I think fits right into what you were just saying, who was very tied up into the Old Testament. And I don't think in a negative way of Peter understanding that now this story is about to get a whole lot bigger. Well, yeah, for him, it's and you're going to have to Testament. let go of those animal things. For him, it's the only text. Exactly. I mean, right. it's, it's, yeah, exactly it's not, right. it's not yeah. even, it's not even, it's so hard. It's so hard to even have a conversation right. about what Peter's, I mean, can you just even imagine growing up, like growing up Jewish <laughs> He seems like kind of a rebel, but was still in the faith. Then he spends time with Jesus, who he's convinced is the Messiah. And then he has a vision. I mean, I just can't even, I can't even wrap my mind around what an existential crisis it would have been to be, to be Peter. Yeah. And then I think he hears it because he goes to his house and a Jewish person was not even to enter the door of a Gentile person oh. or they would be undefiled and he he goes in the house, which I think is a small detail that actually has huge ramifications if we truly understand what Jewish people were allowed and not allowed to do is he enters the house of a Gentile, well, which and, in his law would have made him unclean. And this becomes this becomes the framework then for early Christian hospitality and why hospitality is such a significant is so important in the New Testament because that's what they're we're breaking down traditions that keep people apart. That's that's what that is all about. Yeah. And and in the New Testament, we don't really think about this that often. But um, so many of the tradi- the traditions that they were working out whether or not to keep these or let these go were their decisions were based on how are we dividing people or separating people or keep, keep keeping people out. Yeah. Know? Which I think when Jesus, I'm going to preach about this Sunday, flips tables in the temple is the temple was set up to keep certain people at certain places. Well, yeah. If you didn't have the right currency or if you weren't the right nationality or yeah. if you were a woman or if you yeah. were, didn't have the right sacrifice and he is flipping tables at the place where everybody would have been, um, there gathering, yeah. gathering, and says, "No, no, no! This the the temple was never meant to be about separating people. It was about to be a place that all nations could come and and worship, and and nobody was excluded. And and so it was a symbol, not 
Jesus, uh, growing up, it was you can't sell stuff in the church because Jesus will flip the table. It had nothing to do. They needed those sacrifices there because people couldn't bring their sacrifices. It was a long journey to Jerusalem. They needed a place that they could buy the things they would need for sacrifice. But it became a place that the Pharisees and the Sadducees could hide in the inner courts and didn't have to be with all of the other people. They're, thus, you've turned my my house into a, a place for dinner robbers or dinner thieves, what Jesus says when he flips the tables. But I think it had to do with you're missing the point of what this whole message was about to begin with. And Jesus says, I'm going to destroy this. Like, and But then don't worry, I'll, I'll build it again in three days. And they're like, it took us 49 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days. And he's like, yeah, that the point, the, the whole time was about who I am and me dwelling with people and that, that whole understanding of what we see in the book of revelation, that God's going to dwell with his people again, that that's what he was after the whole time. So in, in our tradition, in the church of the Nazarene, we have uh, a book called the manual, which talks about the things that are very important for Nazarenes to believe and for Naz- and um, ways for Nazarenes to live. And what's interesting about the manual is that it is a, it's a document that was produced um, for the first time in 1907 or 1908 when the Church of Nazarene was formed. But then um, over the years, it has been, it's been modified uh, because it's, it's always kind of a, it's kind of a working document. At the center of the, of, of the um, manual though in, in our um, doctrines is this idea of entire sanctification that is a tradition it's a particular tradition that a lot of other christian traditions look at us and they see it, it it's two it has two parts the first is that it's our distinguishing doctrine so if we were to edit it too much we would in some people's minds not still be you know have any sort of theological co- cohesion because we would or a distinctive so the the doctrine of entire sanctification is our theological distinctive but it also um, is a way that we um, understand or talk about salvation as in in the world and in growing so growing up in the Church of the Nazarene, what's so interesting about the doctrine of entire sanctification is that I would hear different preachers all throughout my life describe entire sanctification completely differently. So I heard one general superintendent describe entire sanctification as um, the unknown bundle. The entire sanctification is giving up on the altar, the unknown bundle, the unknowns of your life. Well, you know, that's, that's very fine. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to that individual, but that's actually a definition of, that's called consecration. And I'm a, you know, working on a PhD in theology now. And like, and it's like, it's like, well, that's, that's actually not entire sanctification at least traditionally but it's but it's funny like in our denomination in our movement even our denominational leaders don't agree (laughs) on what on what entire sanctification actually is at a practical level right and so we have this very wordy description of kind of like what entire sanctification is that kind of that that is constantly kind of changed a little bit it to keep long. the to keep the tradition of the past, but also to try to put a spin on it that's new. So for those of you who aren't Nazarene, you're like, what are these crazies talking about? <laughs> Entire sanctification is this understanding that was that was coming that came about in America in the late 19th century. There were people like Charles Finney; these were pre-Nazarene people. Uh, 
John Wesley would have been John Wesley. It would have started with Wesley in the first Great Awakening, but then through the second Great Awakening, there were no Nazarenes when John Wesley was running around. Just to be clear, they were just they were just Anglicans. Okay, and then you know. Uh, Congregationalists and these different types of things throughout the 19th century, but there was this idea at revivals that that um, G, that the Holy Spirit was radically changing people's lives. And I've listen, I've heard story in my own congregation. There's a guy who loves to tell the story of he was fighting the urge to go uh, to church one night. He came to church and he was a he was a um, guy who smoked religiously and uh, just had some other things in his life. And for whatever reason the, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him in such a strong way that night. He never t- touched the pack of cigarettes again, or had, or had an urge to. And this, he's not a unique story. Like there are people like that that have have had an experience of radical changing in their life, where they come to God in this crisis way, and their lives are radically changed. So this was happening all throughout the 19th century. People were alcoholics. They would come to a revival meeting. Uh, this is a uh, Louis Zamperini. I don't know if you've ever heard, read the book Unbroken, an amazing story of the of the um, 1936 Olympian Louis. Amprini. I mean, he at a Billy Graham crusade in the mid 20th century, he goes to this crusade. His life is radically altered. He gives up alcohol. I mean, this, so all throughout kind of the 19th and 20th century, there are people who are experiencing this just kind of like radical conversion. And over that time, there was developed this idea of entire sanctification that, that is an instantaneous um, moment where uh, well, and some of you, some of you out there would be like, it sounds like what you were just describing was conversion. Well, in the Church of the Nazarene, we there was this idea that subsequent to justification to conversion, there was this moment that you would completely surrender your life to God, and the surrendering of one's life to God was consecration. But then, what the Holy Spirit would do is would the Holy Spirit would radically. Uh, T- would uh, take out take out sin would take out the idea was that when one was entirely sanctified their sin nature would be taken away and I've heard analogies of um, when you're saved the tree of sin is cut down but when you're entirely sanctified even the roots are pulled out and the stump is gone like there are different analogies that have been used I can hear somebody preaching that right now am I <laughs> yeah 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 I mean th- there are a lot of analogies that are used for this and and I don't mean to diminish to diminish this um, understanding. However, the worldview at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century prior to World War One, was that there was there was coming about this golden age and you can find it in the hymns where God was doing something completely new in people and actually changing them in, in a way that humans had not been enlightened before in previous generations. And people believed that a part of the eschaton was that we were going to experience kind of like perfect people being completely perfected in holiness, um, which if you read the New Testament, you find evidence of people being perfected in holiness. You know, we're not waiting till the 20th century for this to happen. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's happening throughout. I mean, this is all throughout throughout history. But the Nazarenes um, came together believing that there was a special manifestation going on in the United States of America at the time and that the Methodists were not being faithful to their call to preach entire sanctification and they were supposed to be the ones following John Wesley. And so the Church of the Nazarene began and they had this doctrine of entire sanctification that throughout the history of the church has been preserved in a very traditional type of way. Well, what's happened now kind of in post-modernity, fast forward to the 80s and 90s, is we have professors at universities and pastors all throughout the denomination who don't believe in the doctrine of entire sanctification the way that it's written because it's written in 19th century language. 
right. <laughs> they don't believe in entire and so and so what happens is I was advised I was advised for my ordination committee just say what they want you to hear just say what well, just say what you know they want to hear toe the party line yep just say it and I'm like but why <laughs> like I'm I'm gonna be lying Jonathan it doesn't matter just say what they want you to say right and I've heard this experience I mean from from all across the denomination and it's it's just very unhealthy. Like we have this very unhealthy, socially awkward thing going on in our denomination right now because there are some people who are not willing to have a conversation about the doctrine of entire sanctification the way that it's written. But there's a generation of people who are like, well, we don't even call people to go to the altar anymore. Revi revival tent meetings don't even happen anymore. So why are we still using this language of entire sanctification that comes from an era and a time that we don't even experience anymore? And, or or if we're going to keep the language, then why don't we start acting like we live in the 19th century again to kind of match our ethics with our theology, you know? Well, I think what's so interesting is I think Wesley was just even he, – he was all over the place. And so it's funny that – Do you mean like in his understanding? Like yeah. He, he, was, he, he himself was trying to figure out what this whole thing was about. Absolutely. And I think he made a mistake. I mean, you know, don't, I'm not trying to criticize him. <gasps> Did but... you just say John Wesley made a mistake? He was entirely <laughs> I think, sanctified, Jeremy. I think if he were sitting right here and had a microphone, he was like, the biggest mistake I ever made was I used the word perfect. Because <laughs> I feel like – Well, Christian perfection. Absolutely. Right? I feel like – if you read a plain account of Christian perfection, I feel like 85% of the book, that might be high, but is just him trying to define what he means by Christian perfection rather than actually talking about what sanctification is in the heart and the life of the believer. Is He's always just saying, I don't mean this. I don't mean this. I don't mean this. I do mean this. And I feel like if he would have used um, a different word, we might not be hung up on this understanding that we can be perfect the or the static that, reality exactly that's right. unchanging that once you reach a particular place in spirituality, you're good. You've arrived. You've arrived. And I think that, and so I feel like you're something that I feel like the reason that article in our manual is so long is exactly what you're talking about. Nobody wants to say, we just got to start over and how we're explaining this. And, and it's it is the longest article we have. It is it I I I feel like it's trying to make people happy rather than speak on it to a biblical understanding maybe of what what true holiness is. And we don't want to give up we're more worried about code words than we are what does it really mean to be a holy person. And and what I mean by code words is in our tribe and I'm guessing other tribes as well, other denominations, there's words that you say that when you say it, you understand what they mean. Um, and, yeah. and, and maybe they wouldn't make sense in Outside our code context, words. Yeah. Exactly right. They wouldn't make sense in a, a Baptist scenario because they're Nazarene words or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that we do worship. And I, I, I grew up in uh, Northwest Georgia, as we've talked about before, and, um, and a very legalistic um, place. Uh, it was very, um, our old ladies wore dresses all the time, long sleeves. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandma, a motor yard and a dress. And um, we called it holy hair, but bun, you know, yeah. um, put up, no makeup, no jewelry, no... Sure. Um, no TV in the house, uh, yeah. definitely not going to movies and uh, didn't go to roller ring, didn't go to bowling alley. Like it was just this very legalistic understanding. And I feel like what happened, I'm not a historian. Um, I like to study history, but 
is I think the first generation, like God was moving, right? Like yeah. the Holy Spirit was doing some stuff. Totally. And, and I feel like second generation came along and rather than saying, how do we stay in tune with the spirit? They said, we just need to do what they were doing. And it became more about the tradition and they started worshiping the tradition. So we need to dress like them and we need to do music like they did. And, and it became about, um, if we just keep this going and keep doing things like they did, um, then, then God will keep pouring out a spirit. And I, and I think that at the heart of it, their intentions were, were good. I, I really think they wanted to keep, um, the understanding of what this was all about. But I think that they fell prey to worshiping, uh, what I, what some people have called traditionalism uh-huh. rather than understanding what the tradition was trying to do and get us to, if that. It makes complete sense. So to your point, his speaking about history. So the early church of the Nazarene physically, the churches were often in urban areas because the church of the Nazarene was birthed really out of a bunch of different missions that were reaching out to the poor. And so what's crazy about the Church of the Nazarene is they're coming up with this doctrine of entire sanctification. And what they're claiming is that the worst of sinners, prostitutes, alcoholics, these these people who society understood to be like the ultimate reprobates, the people who are furthest from God. What the Nazarenes were claiming is not only can they be saved in kind of a Calvinist kind of like, you know, regenerated, converted kind of way. But the Holy Spirit's taking them to the next level. The Holy Spirit's perfecting them. The scandal of that claim in the early 20th century was simultaneously a very off-putting to mainstream Christianity in America and very attractive. And the church of the early church of the Nazarene grew, I mean, it spread like wildfire. Yeah. Okay. Well, so what happens in the middle of the 20th century? You have this established denomination and essentially while the church of the Nazarene was birthed as a resistance movement against Methodist established Methodist and Presbyterians who were big wealthy churches, not opening their doors to the poor and the marginalized and in the mid 20th century, what you find is you find a denomination that just jumps on the white flight bandwagon. I mean, here in Lima, the church that planted us 75 years ago is downtown. Where are we? In this influential neighbor, uh, affluential neighborhood on the north side of town, right? And we're the biggest, we're the biggest church in town, right? I mean, go to Chicago. You know, where was where was Chicago first church in the Nazarene? Is in Lombard. It's not. I mean, it's not like you know, it's like it's not. And I'm not coming at those people are great people, and they're really invested in the city. And they're trying to go back into it. I'm not. I'm not like knocking Nazarene leadership right now. I'm saying, just to your point about history, right? Like. We started with this radical claim of entire sanctification and what we were doing ethically, like what we're doing practically, is we were helping these people who were incredibly marginalized in society. We we were seeing them come to Christ and have radical transformation. And so it like backed up, like it made sense. Yeah. It like entire sanctification made sense. Like even though theologically or technically, it may not have been the most sophisticated wording at the early 20th century. It's what the denomination was doing. Yeah. So it didn't like, well, now we're like, you know, this affluential evangelical church that lived that with like these massive buildings out in the country, yeah. you know, we're like, come to us and you're going to get entirely sanctified. Well, what does that mean? You know, I've already got a really nice house. And, and honestly, the church of the Nazarene in many senses, um, 
I heard a sermon just last week where a guy essentially was just preaching the prosperity gospel, you know? And and this is, I mean, this is kind of what has become of Nazarenes. Like, what does it mean to be entirely sanctified? It means to get more money. It means to have, like, even better health care than you already have. You know, it means, it means, you know, like all of these, all of these things, it means like for you to like have some better life and a prosperity. And it's not the same context even anymore of what, and so, but we've held on, we've held on so much to this doctrine as our tradition yeah. that the tradition we should have grabbed onto as a denomination yeah. was the tradition of caring for the poor and the marginalized. Like Imagine what the Church of the Nazarene would look like if our trademark in the world was not this doctrine of entire sanctification, but if our trademark in the world was, oh, those are the people that take care of the poor folks, yeah, right? Those are the people that, that house the orphans. Those are the people that, um, when we don't know what to do with elderly people that are lonely in nursing homes, these are the people that we know are going to come visit them. You know, <laughs> And it's almost like, yeah, we got more concerned with wording of a doctrine than what that doctrine is calling us to and who yes. we are to be in the world. And I think that, and what's just so fascinating to me once again is Brzee, who's the founder of our church, was just noted for saying this phrase that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity or love. And it's interesting because he... He lo- he said that a lot, and and I felt like that would give us the the commission to say let's not get sidetracked on <laughs> on things that are are not essential. Like let's not get sidetracked on things that because in all things we should have charity for each other and with each other. In the non essentials, we should have liberty. There should be things that we think it's not a big deal. And so it gets back to the point, and we were kind of having this conversation before we started recording, was um, what are the essentials? Do we really believe in scripture? Do we really believe in what the Bible says about who we are to be and how we are to live? Or is the Bible just prop up our own agenda, our own uh, ideas, our own thoughts, and, and truly understanding that this is what the Bible is calling us to. And I really think, I love what you said. There's this great, um, there's, there's this video or this movie about Brzee's life. And when they're coming up with a, what to call this movement, um, the whole thought was that, that the, the purest person and the prostitute could actually worship in the same church together, that the drunkard and the, the, the pious person could actually would sit next to each other in church. That was the whole point of why we were going to, this denomination was going to begin. And that's why they chose the word Nazarene and it had nothing to do. Once again, I love our doctrines. I love, so like I said, don't hear what we're not saying. We're not saying get rid of all of it. But I think that that we have to be careful that in trying to defend a doctrine or an article of faith that we don't miss what those things are calling us to. The, 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 the life that these things are begging the people of God to be because that's who God created Listen, us to be. Listen, I am saying who is them. I'm saying like the Church of the Nazarene as a holiness reform movement was kicking against rich, wealthy ministers – who were just pro- promoting a status quo evangelicalism in America. And we have pastors in the Church of the Nazarene making six figures like that are that are not like 
that are not concerned with the ethical with the with the things that the early church and the Nazareth, like we as a denomination have strayed from the heart of of the, have strayed from the spirit of the letter and have prioritized the indoctrination of this thing this like in convincing people that like they can be statically perfect or something in their life and it's nonsense yeah and like if jesus were to come to the church of the nazarene right now like he would say you guys <laughs> why if if this was the most important thing i would have I would have said it, and I'm sure there would be some na- good Nazarene that would say, well, you said be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Can you tell that I grew up in the movement? You know? And he would and he'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You got me there. Man, I'm probably making people nervous now impersonating Jesus. I don't, yeah. Um, got me there. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, dig- I digress. The, I the point. It. The point really is, though, I th- so, well, we're kind of denominationally. I've just been thinking a lot about the tradition because I've been studying, you know, early 20th century fundamentalism, Church of the Nazarene, all these types of things. But I also think about in my own life, what are traditions that I have that I wouldn't be willing to give up yeah. for the sake of the gospel? What are what are things that I love? Um, even about even about my own religion. So I'm a worship leader, you know, and the thing is, um, there's job security in playing music for people that they want to hear. Yeah. I'm sure there are times in my life that I've played music, you know, for the sake of the tradition, for the sake of the response, for the sake of the religiosity of it, that I knew would kind of motivate, I don't know, some sort of like response, but that maybe wasn't the most appropriate thing or the most right thing or the most true thing to what maybe the spirit of God was leading me to, but I resisted it because I know the tradition so well. Yeah. And I just, I, I am kind of getting to this place in my life where I am so in love with the people in my tradition. To me, tradition, the tradition and the movement is a people, not a doctrine. Mm. And what's interesting, if you look at the Bible, that's what the, is uh, essentially the Israelites are a people. They're not just the law. Yes, they're both, but they're a people in history, right? Yeah. And um, Jesus comes saying that um, you're, you know, grafted into these people. And what does Peter say to us? But you are a chosen people. You know, you're not just this list of new laws. You're not just a new covenant in some way. You're a people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, right? And um, in it, following in line with Jesus and the apostles, we ought to be always challenging our own traditions. Well, a scripture that I was going to read that we didn't end up reading, Jesus, both in Mark and Matthew, they have this conversation about um, the, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus saying, you know, uh, what do you think about this and that? And Jesus says to them, he says, you uh, trespass against the, um, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Hmm. And uh, he's talking about the law of Moses where Moses says, honor your father and mother. And they're kind of arguing about the this particularities of that. And Jesus, but this is the line that, that just grips me every time I read it. He says, um, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And honestly, like as a holiness people, you know, I think about, you know, the command of God is, yeah, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
live a life of holiness, not indoctrinate people with a particular understanding of what holiness is. Those are two very different things, right? Yeah. And Jesus said, um, Matthew 23, woe to you Pharisees for you tithe on mill, dent, and cumin, but you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and peace. And it's like, I wish you would have done the former without neglecting the latter. And, and sometimes it feels like that, that we, we can talk about holiness really well, but have we neglected what that holiness once again is calling us to the weightier matters of the law? It also reminds me of a quote from, um, I think his name is Brian Stevens, the guy that wrote Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson. Stevenson. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, he has a quote that says a society, um, should not be based or should not see if it's doing well by how it treats its rich people, but how it treats its poor people. Um, and I wonder if we could, um, could take that and, and put it to our denomination or maybe just the church in general that, that we shouldn't be judged on how we, how big our churches are and we shouldn't be judged on, on how, um, how great our doctrines are but we should be judged on how we treat those that um, the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, uh, the foreigner. And, um, and if that was the, if that was what we judged on how well we were doing in the world, rather than all of the things that we tend to lean into um, and crazy, but I think that's what the Bible actually hints at. <laughs> um, that this is what it means to be a follower and, you know, all the way through the book of James that I think we talked about that in the last podcast, that faith that is worthy is one who looks after the fatherless and the widow and, and doesn't neglect the poor and, and the oppressed. And, and so I think that, that we, we have gotten so um, enamored with ourselves and once again, how well we can say this word or that word, just say the right words at your ordination interview. We just get so enamored that we can, yeah. can break it down. And, and I'm not saying that stuff doesn't have its place, but I think it only has its place if it's propelling us to seek after, to, to really try to be the prayer on earth as it is in heaven, as best as God gives us the ability to do that. And, and if we neglect to do those things, maybe Jesus might be looking at us and saying, woe be unto you. Um, you tie this and you do this and you do this, but you've neglected the weightier matters of, of the law. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that can be kind of scary sometimes. and um, Or it can be challenging and, and heart-provoking and, um, and propel us to be the church that Jesus may be calling us to be. There's another side to tradition. There are people that would listen to this podcast and they would say, well, Jeremy and Jonathan, if you have issues with, you know, your denomination or, you know, doctrine, why don't you just leave? And there's a very strong movement in many Protestant churches right now to just leave. You know, the Southern Baptists are losing people left and right. The Methodists are losing people left and right because people, you know, are disagreeing. And right now we live in an age where if you disagree, leave, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, Tradition is not about books. It's about, it's, it's people as far as Christianity is concerned. And this is where Protestant, 
Protestantism has gotten it really wrong historically. The problem with Luther, the problem with the Reformation is that we made Luther made possible divorce in the bride of Christ. Yeah. It's unbelievable, right? So you've got Erasmus, probably the hero of the Reformation, who's staying in the Catholic tradition. He's like, wait, wait, can't we find a middle way? Can't we stay together? Right? The via media. This is what Erasmus is, the middle way. And honestly, Jeremy, as I get older um, and I listen to people just in our in our culture and in our church throwing stones at each other, I just want to be the guy of the via media, yeah. of the middle way, the middle road. Um, I appreciate our doctrines. Furthermore, as I'm studying history, I mean, I see where they came from. Yeah. And um, I don't, I don't think that uh, Brzee or McClurkin or... Uh, Whitney. Whitney, any any of these early founders would have wished that the the most important thing that doesn't change that stays absolutely static in the denomination is these are these little phrases about the understanding of entire sanctification. I think they would have. I think they would be very sad to know that many of the missional emphases in local churches have gone by the wayside yeah. at the expense of preserving, you know, the doctrinal integrity. But, but I, I do want to say, I do want to say to the young angsty person out there who's like, yeah, I'm sick and tired of, you know, being a part of a tradition that I disagree with. Good luck finding a tradition that you agree with. Good luck finding a family you always agree with for Pete's sake. We'll be looking for your new denomination to pop up. on. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, the most confusing thing that I could possibly do as a pastor would be to start a new church in my community, right? Um, uh, we've had this happen recently. A, a guy had left the church several years ago, and he, you know, started a church downtown. There's the the um, happened to the, the Pentecostal church across town. They their pastor left. He has started another church. It's just so confusing. It's like, it's like, are we? Do we not have enough churches? Like, like what's yeah. going on here? I mean, it's honestly, it's it's personality cults yeah. is what it is. But but the but the thing is, like, in Protestantism, we have a problem with tradition because we think if I don't dis if I don't agree, I can just write my ninety five thesis and leave and take everybody with me that follows me and likes my vibes better than whoever is in charge, and that's that is not that is not the spirit of the early church that we started with earlier. Yeah. Because the early church's spirit is, hey, we're trying to hold this together. We're trying to keep people together. It's humility. It's, you know what? This is what seems best to the Holy Spirit and to us. And and Jesus, you know, coming at the Pharisees saying, hey, you're, you know, you're dismissing the heart of the law for the sake of your tradition. I want to be a minister. I want to be someone who is so faithful to the spirit of my tradition. Yeah. You know, that's... Um, we said we're talking about tradition today. Uh, and although this is very much a personal conversation for Jeremy and I with our de- as far as our denomination is concerned, you honestly can apply this in a lot of different areas of your life. I mean, particularly uh, the community that you're living in, you know, um, your marriage. There are many covenants that are official and unofficial that we participate in in our lives. And one of the great tragedies of COVID-19 culture is that we've just become so disjointed and we've become so convinced that we don't need each other and that we can just make up our own tradition, right? And live our own way. And I'm, um, probably some of my angstiness on this particular episode is just 
the spirit of the world right now, everybody kind of throwing tradition out or then you, or the opposite way or the opposite part of the spectrum is just holding onto it so tightly and not wanting it to change. And I feel like we are in a place right now where we need a via media. We need, we need a middle way, right? And the only way that will happen is if we can truly sit down at a table and have a legit conversation and, and understand that those who, who don't want to just hold on to all the stuff of the past, they're not trying to throw the baby out. They're not just trying to start over. They, they, I, I love our tradition, but I want to honor it. You know, I don't want it to just, just keep doing it. I want to honor it. And, and so I think that if we can, and then, but then those who want to hold on to it, um, can have an under that we don't look at them and say, you're so far out of left field. And so just having compassion and humility, I think is what you said and being able to sit down at the table and say, we want this to carry on for some time to come. And that's the point of this episode is we just want to be faithful to try to be more and more like Jesus each and every day. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.